Revelation chapter 2. Thank you so much. I'd like to do a disclaimer always at the top of every video to say that I know everybody has different beliefs about what they believe, but I'm trying to teach you what I've come to learn. I never mind disagreements. If you see it another way than I see it, I love that. That's how we learn. So if you have a different perspective and you, you know, a question mark goes over your head and you think, I think this, uh, I never mind after class or if you want to go out and have lunch or you just want to shoot me an email or a text, I like that. It helps me grow as well. And as I've said before, if I find things along the way that uh, I can't back up with scripture, I never mind changing either. So I'm, I'm not holding on to this like it's my way and no other way but I am trying to teach it in a way that I've best understood it to make it clear to you. And I think my mom and I laughed about it, the book of Revelation is, because I went back and taught it about 11 years ago. And it's amazing just how 11 years can totally change how you, how you see the book of Revelation. So I imagine we'll look back on this in another decade and think, wow, I wish I would have seen this. But that's the beauty of prophecy. It's the beauty of studying a book about the future. So we'll do our best. Tonight is going to be very good. Hope you got a worksheet. We're going to tackle two chapters tonight. Come on, somebody. Can you, can you, believe, can you believe for miracles? Um, we're going to tackle chapter 2 and chapter 3 tonight, but in a very different way. I have really prayed intentionally to, to teach this in a way that would be meaningful to you and as I've said before, there's such great content on YouTube, such great pastors and teachers and historians that probably can do so much better justice than I can do it. So I leave that out there for you to deeply study. From a teacher perspective, I could probably hang, I would say, a minimum of, of two to three months in chapter two and three because not only do we have to deal with the churches, but the history of those churches and then the present day of those churches, then the future of those churches, and there's seven of them. So we would have to deal with three different areas, the historical, and then try to play that out. And so as I prayed over it, how to do it, I just want to say this. There's plenty of information out there online if you want to study deeper in the way you're going to go. The way I'm going to go tonight is a different way. I'm going to go by trying to shift your thinking about it. So if you do choose to study deeper, you can go into it with a different perception and a thought about it. So let's just jump right in. I always like to do the recap. So we open up, and here's what we've been talking about. We've talked about that there are three type of nations, the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church, and that God views those totally separate. And we've taken time to go through that, but I did want you to see it again that God is going to finish the church. That's what I've really been holding on to with the uh, several lessons. I think we're you know, into actual lesson four, but like three ABC, so we're, we're quite a ways in. And I've been trying to really build a foundation that the church is different and that God starts and finishes everything. He starts, he always finishes. So I've really spent a lot of time on these chapters last week. I hope you enjoyed it because we, we came across this, the number seven. Uh, I had a lot of comments on this, the mystery of seven, but we said this, that it was a finishing, that God's mystery is going to be finished, uh, the mystery of seven. And we went through the book of Genesis and we pulled out in the book of Genesis everywhere the number seven was used for the first time. And we came up with this, that the mystery seven means the end of God's work. It's a finished work. And, 
uh, an ending of arrest, sanctification, comfort, establishment of covenant, joint in marriage, keeping with life, and a sweet-smelling aroma. And that if that be true, that, that once the tribulation starts, that these things would begin to shift into another way. And then this was a pretty interesting thought that I think helps everybody that's studying Revelation was the difference between persecution and wrath. Uh, wrath is totally different than persecution, and we get the two mixed up because many Christians say, well, we're going to go through the tribulation because we're going to be beheaded and persecuted. But I said this, persecution is punishment by the unbeliever upon the believer, and wrath is the judgment of God upon the unbeliever. Two totally different things. One is a human to a human, and the other one is God to humanity. So now we're going to get to jump into chapter 2 and 3. Can you give God a hand for chapters 2 and 3? So we've got to deal with these seven churches. Uh, we've talked a little bit about them. I will not uh, belabor the point too long. But these seven churches that sit up on the corner of Asia Minor, we're going to talk about them in a, in a unique way, uh, not dealing specifically with each of the seven. Like I said, it would take, us, uh, take me a long time to dive into each of them, but we're going to look at it from a, a perspective that I think will do. Here's the scripture that really is where we're landing on the whole book of Revelation, Revelation 1.19. Write down what you have seen. That's all of chapter 1. John jotted down all this conversation with Jesus in chapter 1. Then the things that are now happening. And as we talked about that, that was chapters 2 and chapter 3. So we are in this green section right now uh, discussing chapters 2 and chapter 3, meaning the things that are now happening and are continuing to happen. Here's what's strange. They're still happening now. You're living in this green section of the church world, the church age, the message of Jesus to the church. And then I probably, if I'm just guessing, the reason we've all started coming is because we really want to know what's going to happen. That that future of us is the thing that really motivates us to say, man, I want to come on a Wednesday night and study this thing out. This was it in a graphic. I put it up last week, but I want to show you again to kind of uh, trigger your thought that it's the Jesus who was, the historical Jesus, the Jesus that died on the cross, resurrected from the dead. But now we're in a period of time of the Jesus who is. He's next to the Father. He's interceding for us. He ever lives to intercede. And he's the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. However, there is a role Jesus will play of the Jesus who is to come. And this Jesus, it's not a different Jesus, but this role has not been released yet. The Father has not come to the time period where the who is to come begins to come off the throne, take the scroll out of the hand of the Father, and begin to redeem the earth back and deal with sin. As we come into this, this also plays out, since Jesus is the head of the church, it also plays out that how he will deal with the churches through these letters, that these letters will have a very historical part to them, meaning very literal, that these letters are written to literal churches. They're not figurative. The, you know, that's one thing I say about Revelation is uh, the people that say it's just a symbolic figurative book, but we have a really hard time to you know, back that up, at least from the first three chapters, because there were, and I'll show you a picture or two in a minute, there were historical, real, real churches. 
But the personal side is that each of these are timeless. That God who wrote, the Jesus who wrote to these literal historic churches, because he is the Jesus who was, the historical church, he's also the Jesus who is, meaning that every letter we read will have a timeless uh, universal message to all of us, meaning I could go read it right now and it still speaks to me. It's still moving forward. It's still relevant to what God would want. And then the final one is the prophetic, meaning uh, it's a big word, but the eschatological, the map of the future, that these seven churches as well, not only are they going to be historical with their own problems and their own geography and their own people, they're going to be timeless they're going to speak to us even today, 2,000 years later. But beyond that, they're also prophetic. Meaning, meaning, because they're prophetic in nature, they're going to also speak to the historical future of you and I and what we're dealing with. And that's really where we're going to go tonight. On your worksheet, each letter, there's three of them. I just went through them, but I would like you to write them down for your worksheet. Each letter, the seven letters to the seven churches have a historical perspective, meaning it's a message given to each church that it existed in the moment of their history, literally and specifically. So it's a literal letter to a literal church with literal people and a literal problem. It's not just symbolic. And that's what we mean when we say each letter is historical. We can actually go back in history and look at documents and time periods and where the church was and where they were located and who, you know, the type of people that were there. Next, it's also personal. Personal in the sense that the message given to each church is timeless and speaks to the universal church as a whole meaning I could go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and read those churches and get out of it and to the church at Believers in Douglasville, 2,000 years removed, it will still speak to me in a very timeless manner. Why? And this is why. Because the Jesus who is to come has not come yet. So therefore, the letters to these churches are still very much in a framework of, of reality for us. Uh, and so when I read it, what I would like you to ponder at least is this, is don't read it as, oh, this is just Ephesus that lost their first love, but this is a historical church that God specifically spoke to, but he's also speaking to me as well, which is the strangeness of the Bible anyway. It's written thousands of years ago, but because it is the breath of God, it still speaks to us today. And then the third one is the prophetic message. It's the message given to each church is symbolic and eschatological, meaning it speaks to the nature and history of the church. And then this is, I go back to lesson two, over time. And this is where this uh, pink is where we're going to hold tonight because I want to talk about this word over time. Again, I think understanding time really helps you understand the whole book of Revelation, not, as I said before, not just understanding symbols and, and all the hard things you understand, but if I understand how God sees time, it helps me understand maybe how this letter plays out. I want to show you something interesting that, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll preface it with this thought. I do not believe that God does anything by happenstance. 
right? I even think the way our Bible's laid out, like people in historical, people that teach theology, the book of Job was written first, but yet it finds itself right before the Psalms. I don't think anything God does is, is by mistake. I think everything he does is intentional. Here's the strangeness of that. The older you get with God, you see more clearly that God is very methodical. I've had some of you, uh, you know, touch base with me after class and say, I never really realized, last week especially, that the number seven had such purpose behind it. To me, it's just seven. But God has such purpose behind all of this. So as we go through these letters, I, I do want to uh, lean to this moment of, I don't think these churches were just because God couldn't think of some other churches. I don't think he just picked them randomly, like, you know, a wheel, and he pulled out Ephesus, and Ephesus is like, yay, and then Smyrna. And then I think God did it intentionally. Why? To show us this timeless prophetic nature of the church. So I'm going to put up a, a map. I've shown you this map a whole lot, but this map, if you look at it, I've laid, the churches are labeled on the left, and then uh, on the right is the map of Asia Minor. And do you notice anything interesting about the churches? The order that they're in, it, it, this is just my thinking on it, is that the order that they're in is specific because that order goes clockwise. It's not like one, then over to seven, then back to two. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and it moves around the hand of a clock, and I put that up there. I think that was intentional because I think God is so orderly that the letters to the churches he wrote were geographically in a, a, a clockwise kind of fashion, running in a clockwise, and this is my take on it. You don't have to believe this because I truly believe that God is going to teach us that these churches are not just specific, historical, literal churches, but they are a prophetic timepiece for us to follow. And this is where I'm going to take you tonight on this journey. It is an orderly timeline of church history from beginning, and there's my words, and I'll tell you why I believe this, from beginning to end. If Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, the first and last, I think this was lesson two, then it would, this is my feeling on it, then everything he starts, as we said before, he finishes. If he's the head of the church and the church had a starting point on the day of Pentecost, it stands to reason, therefore, that God is going to end the church age as we know it. It will come to a halt, and we will move into what I would call the tribulation period. It will come to a halt. We will move into the kingdom period. It will come to a halt. We will move into eternity. It's kind of how it's going to be all. But watch, everything God starts, he what? He finishes. I would challenge you to find anything God has ever started that he didn't finish. Now, here's what's weird. If the church was started 2,000 years ago, on the day of Pentecost, and it's still here now, what can we logically conclude? 
God's not finished with us yet. Correct? All right. If you want to open your Bibles, I just want to give you a scripture that I'm going to allude to. Acts chapter 1. Because in a moment, uh, as we go through the class, this, this will come out. Verse 8. Jesus, talking to the disciples, the apostles, before the birth of the church in Acts 2, when it was the seedbed. Listen to verse 8. For, especially for Pentecostals, this is like our claim to fame scripture. But I don't necessarily think it was just so we Pentecostals could talk about power. But I want to I want to lean on a phrase that I hope will help you understand. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. So already he's pulled me into a job. How many of you know you got a job? It's not to sit and veg on this planet and just go to work and come home and work nine to five and have your hobbies. You've been given a job. The job is you're to witness. Now watch what he's going to do. And you will be witnesses telling people about me everywhere. And now here's the weird thing. He's going to start in Jerusalem. And everything God starts, what does he do? He finishes. So let's see how we would finish it. I'm going to start in Jerusalem, go through Judea, then in Samaria, and then all the way to the end of the earth. Meaning... I believe that right now we're in a period of time with God where we are working toward a finish line. And that finish line is witness. And the reason I need you to witness is I don't want anybody to die and that's the reason I'm so slow to come back. I know y'all want me to come back really quickly. I know you're desperate, especially before the November election. Come, Lord Jesus, hurry up. We can't do another coronavirus in 2021. And Jesus is like, I'm not in a hurry. I'm not in a hurry. I need more people to repent. Do your job. Now, here's the weird thing to that. The reason he's so desperate is because once he finishes the church... Your work on earth, watch, as a witness is over. You cease to witness and the next phase you step into is to rule. You begin to reign. Right now we're witnesses, we're martyrs, we're the voice of God on the earth. But once he's finished with us on the earth, I believe we're removed off of the earth. And when we come back, we come back a glorified, immortal body who rules with him, not just simply witnesses to lost people. We reign and we rule. Here's the thought. Go back a few. This was like lesson two when we talked about Jesus, uh, the person, is a time. If, if it was true when we went through time... And we talked about there was a beginning, there was Eden in the beginning, there was Eden in the end, there was an Adam, there was a last Adam. If, if we have all of that, then it stands to reason why would the church be any different? Why would the church age, the age of the church that we're in right now, why would, why would it be any different than anything else God would start and stop or finish? And so I put this up there to show you that I believe the start of the church age was the church of Ephesus historically and prophetically. And when it comes back around to the finish, because Jesus is the head, he's the beginning and the end, the end church is Laodicea. 
And that ending church, strange, we'll pick this up next week, that ending church starts the next chapter with the weirdest thing that says, after these things. We'll talk about that much more in depth. There is coming an after, after this Laodicean church that is also historical, it's also literal, it also will touch your life personally, but it also will represent the prophetic of the church to come that we will walk through. Here's just a picture just a, of Ephesus. I just gave you a few of Ephesus. But I mean, this is, this is today. It's still there, the literal historical Ephesus. There's ruins that are still available that you can go walk through and that you can see. So uh, beautiful, right? But I mean, could you imagine 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul is going through this city preaching the gospel. John is writing letters to this church. And though historically it just seems like it's in ruins now, and you know, it's just the old Ephesus is kind of gone, but that prophetic nature and that personal nature of the church still ministers to us today. It's beautiful if you ever get a chance to go uh, or just check pictures out of all of them. All right, let's jump into it. This is uh, in a several graphics that I've put together to kind of show you in, the, in a visual way, not just teaching, but in a very visual way uh, to pull everything over the last four or five weeks together in a few slides to to start putting all of these random ideas together in a neat little package to make a point of what we need to do. But my, my starting place is that these seven churches that have a finishing, they have a beginning, Ephesus, they have an end, Laodicea, is not just the end of the specific church, but the global church. There is coming a time where the global church, our work on earth, I don't mean the church like Christians cease to exist and the body of Christ is no more. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about the global church that has been given a job on the earth to witness that will come to an end. I believe that end is the rapture that automatically the moment launches the next period of time, the tribulation period, where God begins to display the wrath and begin to deal with sinful mankind, rebellious Jews, the kingdom of Satan. And so that'll be another seven years, which is what a lot of people love to talk about. But these, these two chapters of seven churches, I want to deal with them historically. Let's look at the DNA of the seven letters. All the letters have pretty much a specific content related to them. Uh, that can help us understand what God is saying. Here is the first one. Every church has a supernatural element to it. What you're going to see at the end will be interesting when we get to the seven because I don't think it's, of course, I'm sure you could have found more, but I pulled out seven. I don't think it's comical that seven letters, seven churches, seven angels, and there's seven pretty much foundational things in each of these letters again that God is really bringing a finishing but the supernatural every church starts this way to the angel of and then the church to the angel of and then the church the angel uh, most often in the Greek here is translated as an angel a supernatural being it can also mean a preacher but most often it is done as a supernatural being this is my take that I believe, to this, you know, I think it's 
gratefully foundational for Christians today. I believe every church should have at its core the supernatural. And what I see happening is we have more business than we do supernatural. We're much more about the natural, the smoke machines, the lights, the the ambiance, the stage presence, the clothes we wear, the skinny jeans, the the hip technology, and nothing wrong with any of that. It's all great. Who wants to go somewhere where nobody can sing on key? It does help to have talented musicians and good preachers and, and great buildings. But I do want you to know that I believe Jesus' point to say to every church, to the angel of, and then call the name of the church, is that he had an expectation that the supernatural would be foundational in all of God's people. We weren't just a run in the door, sit down, check the box, give some money, and leave. We were to come and expect the supernatural flow and power of God. We were to expect that I'm going to show up and the Holy Spirit is going to do something today because He's in charge. And it's amazing, we're 2,000 years removed. We're kind of in that Laodicean moment where we're just lukewarm. There's very little expectation of the supernatural. There's very very little expectation of getting up on a Sunday going, I'm going to worship because the Holy Spirit is going to encounter me and it's going to sweep me off my feet and do a miracle. It's pretty much like, well, I really just don't know if I can make it today. But every letter starts of the supernatural expectation of God without trying to preach about Believer's Church. But I would like to say this. I genuinely, as a shepherd over this house, pray every week that the Holy Spirit will show up. And by that, I don't just mean somebody speaks in tongues or somebody falls in the floor or somebody gets healed, but that His presence will show up. And if He feels like we need to turn left, we'll turn left. If He feels like we need to go a different way, we'll go a different way. And uh, I'm not saying we don't have order here, but, but I really genuinely often say, Holy Spirit, have your way. I don't want to just do a, a group of people coming together to clap our hands. I, I genuinely want to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. The next one is, every letter has the title of Jesus. For those of you that love to study deeper, as I said, it could take us weeks to dig it all out. But Jesus uh, refers to his own self. In the first person, uh, I'll, I'll read it to you. I'll get back over there in my Bible. But just as a way to show you what I mean, in every letter he, he refers to himself. Verse 1 of chapter 2, write this letter to the angel of the church at Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstand. I love that about Jesus because it tells me the second necessity of the church. Keep the main thing the main thing. It's not about our music, our style of music. It's not about the paintings on the wall. It's, not, it's just about who he is. And so I think even these letters are going to show us what discipleship and what Christianity should look like as these letters play themselves out. And gosh, so many times I think we all have known we don't even get to level two before people get their feelings hurt, agendas get involved, wealthy people try to run the show, I take my checkbook away. I had a lady tell me years ago she wanted me to do something for her, and I said, I just don't have peace to do it. And she said, I'll tell you right now, if you don't do it, I will never give any more money here again. Well, I understand that. I mean, I understand that 
you know, people can be that way. But I do want you to know that if we're not careful, any of us, me included, can make church about something other than Jesus. And, and anytime we're working with a group of people, me included, it just helps to go, it's, and I do this a lot, it, it's not about me. It's just not about me. It's not about me. Come on, Lord, it's not about me. Over and over, it's not about me. I'm having a bad day, but it's not about me. That person hurt my feelings, but it's not about me. It really does help you to come to that place. The third part of the letter is every letter says this, verse 2 of, of, of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 2, I know all the things you do. <laughs> Woo! I don't know if I like that or not. But every letter has the I know. There's nothing we can hide from God here. There's nothing he doesn't see. He sees the secrets of your heart. He sees the thoughts you're having. He knows everything about you. We call it our Christianese. We put our Christian face on. Amen, brother. Hallelujah, sister. I'm good. Uh-huh. Come on. And, and, and have hate in our heart the whole way. But Jesus tells us. He says, look, here's what I want you to know about my church. I'm going to write a letter to all seven of you to let you know what I'm thinking. Number one, make sure the supernatural shows up. Number two, make sure I stay the main thing. And number three, I know everything that's going on in every heart, in every mind. None of you can trick me. None of you can get away with it. I know everything there is to know. So right now in your life, watch, whatever you're facing, he already knows what the answer is. And he's going to pull you back to, you're going to have to believe the supernatural. You're going to have to trust who I am because I already know what you're going through. And then that brings me to the fourth part of the letter. <laughs> it's never fun here. Every church, but if, I think there were two that don't have a desperate problem, but, but they all have problems. They all have weaknesses, things that they deal with. What is this teaching me? It's teaching me there's no place for perfect people to get their feelings hurt. Every church has problems because problems follow people. People cause problems. People are problems. People have problems. It's the nature of the game, and from day one, Jesus knew it. And watch, what do we do with problem people? Kick them out. That's the typical, right? Get mad at them. Don't let them come. Gossip about them. Jesus says, no. Look, I'll tell you how we deal with problem people. Go back to the supernatural. Let the Holy Ghost work. Make it about me instead of them. Remember, I know everything that's going on. And don't let the problem ever sway you. But yet so many people by level four of these letters get so sidetracked by the problem. They forget who Jesus is. They forget that he's really in charge. But he speaks to the problem of every church. The next is this. That's why I love God. He always gives them a solution. Stay away from people who just preach the problem and never let you know there's help, there's hope, there's a way out. Yes, it's ugly. Yes, life gets hard. Yes, divorce happens. Sickness happens. Life throws you a curveball. But the beautiful thing of the Jesus who knows all and knows who he is also knows who you are. And with every temptation, what does he do? He makes a way out. But I, I didn't pull this up, but for those of you that want to, you know, something to think about, this is probably the most misquoted of all. God will never put on you more than you can handle. And that's usually coming from the person that's at rock bottom about to fall apart. Well, God will never put on you more than you can handle. 
But that's not even what it says. He says, God will not put on you more than you can handle, that he would not make a way of escape. So I tell people, if you have more on you right now than you can handle, then you missed your way out because there was a way of escape. And so with every church, he provides a solution. He gives you a way of escape. What is the way of escape? Listen to every church. Listen. You want to overcome? Listen. Listen to what the Spirit is saying. Listen to what he says to the church. And if you listen, if you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, you will overcome. Uh, I'm not going to take a long time to preach on this, but I will just love to let you know that the solution to your problem is not in Google. It's in listening. And that takes maturity. It's not easy to listen when all hell is breaking loose. We scramble. We grab for straws. We try to figure it out. We get mad. We have regrets. We do things we wish we would have never done. Jesus is right. And you see what I mean by, though this is a historical, literal church, they're very much meaningful to us today. And the last one is going to show you what I mean by that. The last one is a promise. Every church ends with a promise. If you overcome, then this will happen. If you listen, you will overcome, and this will happen. If you listen and overcome, then this will happen. So every one of the churches, he speaks to this DNA of this. Now here's, if you want to jot a note out to the side, my belief is this is a perfect diagram of New Testament discipleship. This is why community of discipleship is so important. You need more than just go to church. This right here is an in our face that just going to church doesn't work. You must be discipled. Why? You must be discipled to be back to the supernatural. Know who Jesus is. Know he knows you. And all the way through to learning how to listen. And I think all of us in this room could probably look back over our past and find a problem and say, yes, you're right. I saw all of that working in my life, in my marriage, in my children. Because it's amazing when the problem comes, we suddenly forget who Jesus is. When the problem comes, we quit listening. We start scrambling. We go back to our old habits, our old addictions. So as you read this, which is what I would love you to do this week, I'd love you to read all two chapters, two and three, and just kind of have this out to the side And then as you read, just make little notes that may even help you more understand the power of these seven churches and these seven letters. The next is the DNA of the churches. Meaning, every church that is literal and specific who have these issues and these quirks and they all get a personal letter from Jesus, these seven churches... God is going to point something out good about them. Come on, somebody. He's just always picking on your bad stuff. He knows everything you do from good and bad. And to all seven churches, he's going to choose something good about them. And it's really interesting as we get into it how it works. Here's the first one, Ephesus. Now, I think on your worksheet, they're going to, they're going to stack on top of one another, the good and then the bad. And so once we get both of them out there, I want to make some analogies back and forth to kind of help us understand what really is going on. Uh, Ephesus, the hardworking church. He says, I've seen, verse 2, I've seen your hard work. How many of you have ever worked really hard for Jesus? 
I mean, you're like, man, I'm going full throttle for you, God. I'm giving you all I got, man. I'm burning the candle for you, Jesus. Well, guess what? He notices that. He, he notices what you're doing. The next church, uh, Smyrna is the persecuted church, the suffering. He says, I know your poverty. I know your suffering. I've seen it. Real simple to do this. All of these right here that I've given you are the I knows. I know blank. I know blank. I know you're a hard-working church. I know you are a poverty-suffering church. You've been persecuted. The next one, the loyal church. The church at Pergamum. I've seen your loyalty, your dedication, your faithfulness. Man, thumb up to you. Do you know right now that God knows your loyalty? God knows your faithfulness. He will even say things like this in the New Testament. If you want to rule much, you've got to be faithful in little. You've got to be faithful in that which is little to rule over much. Moreover, it is required that a man would be found faithful. God is looking for loyalty. I think the sad thing is we live in a generation where loyalty is at an all-time low. That faithfulness of God, it's very sporadic. I read a... I read a report not long ago that the average person attends church like this community once a month. And to go once a month is considered I'm full time. I go one time a month, which would be probably an hour, but I'm considered that that is my spiritual duty. To go to the house of God at least once a month is the thinking of a generation right now that we live in. How many of you would think that... If you only went to work once a month, only ate with your wife or husband once a month, only slept once a month, only ate once a month, only put gas in your car once a month. Maybe you may do that right now. How many of you know if you just did other things in your life once a month, went to the gym once a month? I just don't think it would be a very great life at all. But yet so many Christians just get into this, well, I give God the mediocre, I've left the loyalty, everything else divides my loyalty. The next church, Thyatira, the serving church. He says of the church at Thyatira, I know all things you do. Verse 19 of chapter 2. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I love this verse here. And I see your constant improvement in all things. Man, it's kind of weird to think that Jesus is looking at my life wondering if I'm improving How would it feel if you raised your kids and they never improved? Good, nobody laughed. So, right, how frustrating that would be. That my kid never improved from age 5 to age 20. Never improved at all. Never learned anything. Never grew. Well, this is what God says of this church. I'm proud of you. You're growing. You're changing. You're serving. I noticed everything. The next one is the church with a good reputation. To the church at Sardis. He will say this in chapter 3. He said, I know all things you do, and I love this. You have a reputation of being alive. And then he says this, but you're dead. You had a good reputation. Everybody else thinks highly of you. You're an awesome group of people. Everybody that walks by you goes, man, what a cool church that is. Man, you ought to go there. Those people are really hopping. Got a great testimony in the town. But he's going to say something about them. You're really dead. Philadelphia is the word church. He says to the church of Philadelphia, he says, I know all things you do, and I've opened a door that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you've obeyed my word, and you didn't deny me. He commended them for obeying the word of God. 
God is not Bible reading just for the sake of Bible reading. God gave us the Bible because he wants to move us in a place of being faithful and obedient to his word. It was not just given to me to have a devotional. God gave me his word so that I could become obedient and please him and do the things he wanted me to do. Sad here as we get into this more. Laodicea, he said not one thing good about him. Now that's got to be sad when you're a church. And the head of the church has not one thing good. You'd think he could find something good. Y'all brushed your teeth. I'm proud of you. <laughs> nothing. A nothing good church. I wonder today in our generation how many people are meeting, having church, and Jesus, the head, is looking at us going, I just really don't see anything good. I know y'all got a great reputation, but I don't see anything good there. That's profound. I mean, they're giving offerings. They're doing the religious stuff. They're doing everything religious people do. As a matter of fact, this is the scripture that people usually use to witness to people. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man would open the door and come in with him, I will supple him. And we kind of give that to sinners. Jesus is knocking at your heart. No, 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 no. He's not knocking at the heart of sinners. He's knocking at the church. Y'all have kicked me out of my own body. You have removed me out of the equation. You have taken me completely out of the whole thing. And so that is an amazing thing that Jesus himself, who is the head of the church, alludes to this final church that y'all are going to get so religious, so wealthy, so into yourselves, so about you and your agendas that you will push me completely out and you won't even know I'm gone. I will have to be knocking on the door to go, can I come in and hang out with you? You won't even miss me. You won't even look for me. This is Laodicea. We'll read it before we close. You won't even miss me. There was an old joke one time. A farmer went to a church. He showed up. He stank. He was in overalls. But everybody told him, you ought to come to church. So he showed up at church one Sunday. He sat on the front row. He's sitting on the front row. He kind of smelt of the farm. He was disheveled in his look and overalls and had a rather aroma about him of farming. So at the end of church, the pastor went up and said, Hey, thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate you being here. But we would just like you to know that if you come back, we would prefer you to not dress like you're dressing. We would prefer you to go home and ask God how you need to dress before you come back to church. He said, okay, that's great. So he went home. He asked God. He came back the next week. Same farmer, same seat, same overalls, same look, same disheveled look. The pastor was ticked. Went back to him and said, I thought I asked you to go home and pray about what you should wear to the house of God. He said, I did pray about what to wear to the house of God. He said, well, what did God tell you to wear? He said, God told me he had no clue because he hadn't been to this church in years. <laughs> oh, I heard that joke and I thought, that's an awesome joke. I hadn't been there in years. I don't know what to tell you to wear. That's the church of Laodicea. It's the church that doesn't even know God's gone from the building. We're so into us and our religion and our services and our ceremonies and our sacrifices and our programs I wouldn't even know if God didn't show up today. The DNA of the church is from the negative. And this is where it gets interesting. 
because you're going to start seeing something about all these commendations of these churches, but it teaches us that with every Christian in every church, if we're not careful, we can lose sight of that there's, this is the Chinese principle, there is the yin and there is the yang. There is the giving myself a lot of grace because I'm doing so good, but I forget that there are things in my life God still wants to deal with. And so many times in our Christian walk, we give ourselves a lot of grace while we don't give other people grace. In other words, be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. Key word being it's more than a bumper sticker. He's still trying to finish you. So he tells us this of these churches. The church at Ephesus that was the hard-working church, the church that was working so hard to make it, he says this about him, yeah, you work hard, but you don't love me. It tells me that I can be busy about God and not really in love with God. It tells me that I can serve on a team and go to church and give my money, and yet that's really not what he wanted anyway. Because on one hand, hey, Ephesus, you're really hardworking, and I'm proud of you, but you don't love me like you did at first. And a lot of times, if we're not careful in our walk with Jesus, this thinking of, as long as I'm busy, God's proud of me. And I'll just say this, that God genuinely is after a love relationship with you. The next church, I love this, the DNA of the churches, is it, it, this church of Smyrna, is he says, you know what, with all that's going on, and I love it, you're still faithful. Meaning it is possible in the middle of hell. You remember there were the persecuted church, the suffering church. He commends them even in, the, even in the rebuke. This is one of the churches that really doesn't even get a rebuke. He just says, you know what? You stayed faithful. And this speaks highly that Jesus himself, I'm sure, could have found something to pick on. But he chose to hold to say, I've marked your faithfulness. The next church is the compromising church. The church of Pergamum, they compromised. Let's read it. It's an interesting thought of what Pergamum will do. It says this, I have a few complaints against you, verse 14. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sins in a similar way. So God connects them to a group of people who were a church, but yet, though they're doing church things, they've compromised a lot in their integrity and their sexuality. They're committing sexual sins. They're, and this is so true of us today that there's many Christians today that are busy about God, but they're compromising on many levels compromising in their small things of their life that need to be dealt with. The next one was the church of Thyatira. It's the immoral church. It's the church that has become immoral. The church that has drifted away. I'll let you study them all. I don't want to spend too much time on all of them, but as you go through them, you can, you can pull them out. The church at Sardis is the dead church. You got a great reputation, but you're dead. Everybody in town loves you, but you're dead. 
everybody wants to go to your church, but you're dead. You're the hot topic around town, but you're dead. Church of Philadelphia. It's another church that gets a praise rather than a rebuke. You've persevered. I'm proud of you. You've hung in there. Is it not amazing that the two churches that really didn't get rebuked are connected to faithfulness and perseverance? There's something to be said about just hanging in there. Come on. There's something supernatural about just having the hood spot and not get your feelings hurt and just hang in there. Don't, don't throw in the towel. God's watching. And I know it's hard. It's been several times over 30 years of pastoring. I've wondered, I wonder if I'm even called to do this. Thank God I've hung in there. There's been times in my married life, I'm like, man, are we, are we ever going to be incredible? I mean, it's just frustrating. We're raising babies. We're struggling to pay bills. Hey, do you know how much beauty is, comes when you just hang in there? I mean, look at these two on the front row. They're in their 80s. They just hang in there. And she just tells him what to do, and he doesn't even listen. And yet they just get along perfectly well. I eat with them every week, right? I go because he pays, so I show up and spend time with my mom and dad every week. And we typically go to Longhorn. And so at Longhorn, every single lunchtime, his phone will ring. We never know who's calling him. And he never keeps it on vibrate. And it just rings loud. It's on loud so he can hear it. But because he's 84, he keeps it in the deep pocket of his Sanzibelt slack. So he's having to dig it out. He's having to go through his car keys and his, all his stuff that he keeps in his pocket. And while he's doing that, I can see my mother's face starting to sweat and she says do and her lips get tight and she says do not talk at the table on your phone I'm sitting across from him and this is exactly how it goes hello (laughs) I asked him I said how did you get that kind of power most men would be like yes ma'am yes honey oh he didn't even blink an eye just hello I was like, oh, I want that kind of authority. (laughs) And she just kept eating her bread like it's no big deal. They left happy. He didn't do one thing she wanted, and they left happy. I'm like, wow. I guess that's what happens when you've been married, how long, 57? 61 years. Come on, right? (laughs) Well, God, God gives you great joy when you persevere. So you young folks, hang in there. It does get better. may be rough right now, but that's why God made Mexican food. The church that he had nothing good to say about is the lukewarm. I would rather you be hot or cold. I'm sick of this in the middle. Get that. If you want to go study something that will just make your hair stand up, Jesus, Jesus himself said, I would rather you just be cold. I would just assume you not to serve me at all than to halfway serve me. What? I would soon you just get out and go live your life as to live half-hearted for me. Either get in or get out. That hurts, right? I mean, you think that loving Jesus is like, oh, you just live any way you want to, I love you. Not the, not the Jesus to Laodicea. So study those out. All right, let's look at two more slides. That was the, that was the historic, the literal, and the personal. I tried to kind of balance that the best I could in a way that could let you go study it on your own to see the historical as well as the personal. But now let's talk the prophetic. This gets a little deep. 
And I'll tell you how this comes about. It was not my idea, so I've stolen the, which is the beauty of study. You can get other people's thinking, but I liked it, and I'm inclined to believe it myself. I'm not saying you have to believe what I'm going to share with you, but I'm inclined to believe it, and thus I want to put it out there to give you the opportunity to mull over it and see what you believe. These churches that are historical and literal that were started 2,000 plus years ago and written a letter who also are timeless to me and you right now as we just saw they still speak to us today. But they also have a nature of this finishing, beginning and ending of the church itself as a whole. The universal work of the church on planet earth. We're on a, we're on a mission on planet earth my belief is these seven churches speak to this overall historical mission from Ephesus the beginning to Laodicea the finishing and because of the way prophecy is written 2,000 years later we can stand here and look backwards and by looking backward through time uh, which is the beauty of 2020 we will see seven distinct periods of church history and we're in the seventh one right now. What happens after the seventh one? What, what does God do? Finishes it. Right now, my belief is we are living in the prophetic time of Laodicea, meaning that these churches that are on a clock, that are working toward an end, right now we're going to go through seven periods of church history. This is why it would take me months to teach it. Because this is all about church history. So you're going to get it in about six minutes. But this church history of these seven churches are also seven time frames of church history. And I'm going to leave us at the point that my belief is we are in the period of history of the church at Laodicea and we are the generation that will see the coming and usher the coming of the Lord in. I think that's why we're seeing such exponentially weird things that are going on. Even people that have been serving God a long time are saying things to me like, I just feel like something's different. Something's different. I've never sensed it before. This peace stuff, this world stuff, this global stuff, uh, people that really are hungry for God are sensing that there is an urgency. Well, let's look at them. And again, this is church history. We start out with the apostolic movement. The apostolic movement was from the birth of the church in about 30 A.D. through 100 A.D. when the, the believers are going all around. They're doing what Jesus said. Go to the uttermost part of the earth. Witness. Tell people about me. My resurrection in this early church, these early church fathers, these apostles, these disciples are going full throttle. They're going the best they can. And the beauty of it is they're doing this in the midst of Roman rule. And the Romans are just kind of tolerating the early Christians. They definitely tolerated the Jews. But Jew, uh, you know, Christianity kind of evolved out of Judaism. And that brought us to the second where under Nero, if you go study uh, history, Roman history, Rome demanded once they felt threatened by this new Christianity that was just kind of taking over the world so quickly. You remember book of Acts, 5,000 get saved in one day. So could you imagine the exponential growth of how many Christians are coming to knowledge? Well, what's the problem with that? The problem with a bunch of Christians coming to knowledge is Christianity is anti-emperor worship. 
And Rome said, you must worship the emperor. This is why the whole thing of give to Caesar what Caesar, the whole, you just really study the New Testament. So the church goes through a period from 100 AD to 313 AD of severe persecution. Christians being boiled and burned and beheaded and crucified because they became a threat to the emperor Nero, if you want to look at why he really started it. Uh, historically is because he blamed the, the fire of Rome on Christians. And it was their fault that Rome was on fire, and so he decided, well, I'm just going to kill them all. So there's a period of church history where there was deep, deep, deep persecution. Then there was the period of the Roman Empire. If you study history, it's the Constantine era where Constantine comes to power and rather than killing the Christians, decides, well, if I really want to be in charge, what do I need to do? I need to befriend them. I need to get them on my team. I need to support them all. And so this Roman Emperor Constantine just kind of makes a law that the best way I could put it, Christianity is now celebrated and hallelujah, it's now the state religion. And Christianity just explodes during this time of Constantine. Things start happening globally. I don't know how godly it really was of whether he was really on a godly quest or not or a self-serving quest. But nevertheless, the persecuted church kind of ended and they became celebrated as the state religion. You're now required to be a Christian. You have to be a Christian. It's the state religion. Whether you want to be or not, you are. Welcome to the real world. And then it moves into the next period of time that we have the birth of the Catholic Church, the papacy, where religion becomes very orderly and very organized. Communities, they started organizing religion. We have to organize the way you worship, how you worship, where you pay your money to, who gets the money, the landowners that get the money, the rich, the ruling that get the money. It's where all the pomp and circumstance came in, the robes, the hats, the, the celebrations, the you know, all of the things that we would see in these, uh, you know, in the Catholic Church even today, these beautiful uh, archways and these, you know, all the gaudy of the robes and the flowing things. Well, that was birthed out of that influx of Christianity in the Roman Empire and a need to control it, a need to organize it, a need to stay in charge of it. Because the worst thing we need is a bunch of spirit-filled, tongue-talking Christians doing whatever they want to do. Let's control them. Well, that period of time, for those of you that like church history, went on for quite a while, some 900 years. How many of you know you get your feet in the ground for 900 years, you can get really religious real quick? The roots of religion go deep. It was very difficult to break from the roots of religion. If you ever want to look at it, I mean, man, the persecution that came. You did it our way or the highway. We kill you. This is the way we do religion. And then comes what, thank God, we're here today. The Reformation. You may know the story of history where Martin Luther nailed his 99 thesis and this weird teaching of grace came out and that grace was given and that God has saved us by grace, not by works. There's this period of church history up until 1648 where the Reformation, but the problem with that is that the Reformation is the moment, watch, the moment you begin to teach grace, what happens? Everybody's now saved. You're just all saved. I think it was Germany. I'm not sure. Belgium. I don't remember who. Uh, but literally, everybody, when you were born, okay, so you're born to mama. Well, when you're born, you're born into Christianity. You're born into it because it's the state religion. 
So you don't even have to get baptized, water baptized, or believe. You're just a Christian by way of you got born in this country. And, well, because Christianity is so fervent, and it's the state religion of all of us, and this is what we worship, you're now a Christian whether you want to be a Christian or not. It's kind of like the kid that's a Methodist and is always a Methodist because grandma was a Methodist, and my daddy was a Methodist, my parents were Methodists, and I'm a Methodist. I don't even know why I'm a Methodist, but I just am. You ever been born again? I don't know, but I'm a Methodist. Well, this was that same thing that began to happen in the Reformation, and so what that brought about was a, if you study church history between this time for about 300 years, a wave of evangelism that began to happen. A wave of evangelism. People getting born again. You must be born again. It's not about being born into a state religion. It is about salvation in Jesus Christ. And there came the missionary movements that went into the different countries and the different parts of the world preaching Jesus, preaching the Word of God, preaching the Bible, the expansion of the global gospel all over the world. That got us up to about 1900. And now we're 1900 to the present. You're in it right now. The apostate church. The church that's turning away from God. The church that doesn't really need God anymore. The church that is lukewarm. Uh, I'll, I'll read a passage of scripture to see if what you think about it and then I'll, I'll end. Let me pull it up. Verse 1 of 1 Timothy 4. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. So he's talking about the last times, the last days. Why would he call it the last days? Because there's coming a day where it's going to be the last days. We're going to study this in depth. But there's coming the last days. The last, but he says in that time, in this period of this last, this this last move of church history where God is working on the planet. And I've shown you through history how God has been working with humans to preach the gospel, but what humans do to that gospel that causes a new beginning to go to the next level. And now we're in this present apostate church. Listen as I read. They will follow deceptive spirits, teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites, liars. Their consciences are dead. They will say it's wrong to be married and wrong to eat certain foods. But God created them and these foods and they, you need to give thanks for them in God. Listen to, this, listen to this verse, this chapter. 2 Timothy. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be difficult times. People will love only themselves and their money. See, if it feels like we're kind of here. They will be boastful and proud. They will scoff at God, be disobedient to their parents. They will be ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others. They'll have no self-control. They will be cruel. They will hate what is good. They will betray their friends. They will be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and they will love pleasure more than God. They will act religious but will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from these people. And he says, this will be what the last days are like. I believe we're in it right now. I believe we're in the middle of the last days right now. We're in the middle of the Laodicean prophetic church where God is going to bring us to an end and come and get his bride. I'm going to end with one more slide and I'm going to leave it up there if you want to take a picture of it. 
Uh, when we post the video, it will be on there, but many of you may want to take it and go study it. Uh, what I've tried to do is take the last five or six weeks and condense it into a slide to show you what's happening and where we're going to go with this thinking of there's a beginning, there's always an end, there's a beginning, there's always an end, and this is the slide I want you to see. It is going to be a timeline of history as we know it. Not just church history, but all history. I've got the eternal realm up top and then the words timeless on either end because we started from the eternal realm and we're going back to the eternal realm. Uh, when I've talked about this before, so I won't go there. But on the bottom, I've given the word time with a dot dotted red line. Now what I want you to see is that with everything God started, He always finished. Always. And if you notice, the creation that was started is seven days in the same colors as the church age. And those colors I picked are the colors of the rainbow because they're the work of God and the work of His covenant. Now, let's just start. Was there a beginning of creation, yes or no? Yes, day one, let there be light. Was there an end to creation? Yes, day seven. And God saw his work and it was finished. So we start with the first book of the Bible, with the first thing God did, he started and he finished. The next thing in the Bible that is another time period with God is the period of patriarchs. It's, it's, the, it's Noah, it's Abraham, it's Isaac, it's Jacob, it's the rest of the book of Genesis. So once chapter, you know, you know, once day seven ends, the rest of Genesis is the patriarchs. We read about them, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of those things, Joseph, the selling of Joseph. And then that patriarchal period ends because they end up in slavery and God calls a guy named Moses, and for the rest of the Old Testament, God will deal with them from the law perspective. Totally different. Abraham believed by faith and became righteous, but now God is going to say, if you want to be righteous, you have to obey the law. There was a beginning moment in the book of Exodus where the law came on the mountain and God wrote it on stone. There's a definite beginning. We can see it. It is a long period of time, but everything God begins, what does he have to do? Okay, if he did it with creation, then we could assume he will do it with, with the patriarchs. He did because he picks Moses now, and he starts another period with Moses called law. Where does law end? On the cross. It is finished. I kept the law. I fulfilled the law. And now all of the old is gone. I have finished it. You need not keep the law anymore. You don't need to worry about the sacrifices. I have finished it. Done and void. So now God is batting two for two. Let's go now to where we are. From the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he started the church. The church was birthed on the day of Pentecost. This is now where we are right now. We have been moving through history through this age called the church age. We've been historically moving. We are 2,000 years past the stopping of the law, but we're still in this moment of the church. If God is batting two for two, 
what could we naturally assume about the church? He, it will end. What will end? Not the church as a group of people. We keep going. What will end is and be witnesses on the earth. We will stop being witnesses on the earth. And what happens after we end is the witnessing now is from the wrath of God, from the angels being poured out or, or the angels being sent to preach the everlasting gospel and the two witnesses and the 144,000, the work of the church ends as a witnessing tool on the planet. That's my take. Here's the problem. We haven't ended yet. We're still moving, but I believe we're really, 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 really close to the dotted line. Maybe we get there before I pass on, but I still feel like we're close. And here's the weird thing. In the seven days of creation, this is just a thought, in the seven days of creation, and every day is like a thousand years with God, we are now 6,000 years removed from the birth of Adam. So we are in day six with God. What does God do at the end of day six? It is finished and we move into day seven. What is a day to God? A thousand years. What is the kingdom age? A thousand years. Between day six, the end of the church age, and day seven, the thousand year reign. That's why it's a thousand years. We say, well, why aren't we going to talk about this in depth. Why the millennial kingdom? Because God has to fulfill a human living for a thousand years because that was the curse. You will not live a day, and a day is a thousand years with me. The day you eat, you die. So God is going to fulfill 6,000 6, years because he, six days he created the earth. A thousand years with, with us is a day with God. We're a thousand years removed from, if we trek back in time, 6,000 years back, we can go back to records to where in that period of time was Adam and all the patriarchs. I believe that's going to end. And then when that ends, what takes over? The tribulation period. It has a distinct beginning. We're going to study it in depth. The signing of a peace treaty, a distinct middle, the setting up of the image in the temple, and a distinct end. It's a seven-year period of time. God will end that one as well. We move into the next phase of God before time ends. The next phase of God before time ends is the kingdom age. It is a thousand years with God on the planet. But at the end of a thousand years, and it says it that way in the Bible, at the end of the thousand years, Satan is loosed, everything's done, and then we enter eternity. So I just I put that up there because I want you to see I don't believe the church is just going to keep on going through the tribulation. I believe if God has ended the first three, he will end the fourth. He's definitely going to end the fifth because it's only seven days long. And he's definitely going to end the sixth one of the kingdom age. Why? Because it's only a thousand years. So why would I think that the only thing he wouldn't end would be the church? If he ended all the others, there, I gave you one, two, three, four, five, six. If he ends six of them distinctly, Biblically, there's no way we could say that God did not end the creation, patriarchs, and law, tribulation, and kingdom age. They don't have a distinct beginning and a distinct end. It's just clear through Scripture. Then why would God just look at the church and go, yeah, you people, I'm not even going to end, y'all. I'm just going to let you keep on rolling. 
He has an end to our work. And this is where we're going to pick up next week because when the work ends, I believe we enter into chapter 4 of Revelation and we begin to go through this thing of the tribulation where God is going to take us on a seven-year journey of what is going to be happening as he moves us into the thousand-year reign with him to rule and reign on the earth. And then at the end of a thousand years, welcome to eternal life. And we'll talk about what that will look like when we get there. Let me pray for you. I hope that helped, and I will leave that up there. Father, thank you so much for tonight. We pray that this teaching will be a blessing to us. We pray that it will go into our heart and find good ground. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you. I bless you. Miss Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message.